Hello, and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental enthusiasts, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Laura and I discuss communication strategies. We talk to Bo Ma about material science, comedy, and communication. And finally, there is an underwater lake in Mexico that will instantly kill you if you get in it. Dubbed the hot tub of despair, this super salty methane lake is 3,300 feet below the surface of the Gulf of Mexico and kills anything unlucky enough to fall in. Wow. What a positive way to start today, isn't that? Even your lakes. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) that's true. Well, the people found it, they were like, wow, isn't it weird that these these crabs are all pickled? Isn't that something? And then they're like, wait, why are they pickled? And then then they're like, oh, oh, hot tub of despair, which probably sounds cooler in Spanish. I don't know. Someone had to figure this out. Like, oh, I'm jumping in. Well, that's it. They saw saw all these pickled crabs and they were like, why are they dying like that? You know? Oh, so nobody actually went in. No, no. So a person did not go in. They just noticed. Yeah. And you can't really go, go in because you have to be like in, you know, it's, it's an underwater lake. So it's like we were talking about a few episodes ago. It's gotcha. one of those like lakes inside a lake kind of thing. So. Interesting. Yeah. I would love to see it from a safe distance. <laughs> yeah. Or like a robot or something, but. Would you go down in a submersible, by the way? This is, I know this is a total, oh. total side note, but would you do that? Like, you know, like the super deep sea dive, like, you know, like Don. I think I would. I mean, I don't think any of them ever like really collapsed or anything. Yeah. Like the first one in the 1960s. How yeah. Would you do that? Because well, that would no, make me I nervous. wouldn't do in the first one in the 1960s, yeah. but I would do it now after it's been yeah. proven. I love they're like, oh, let's see if this works. Why not just put people in? That's that's cool. <laughs> now that there's material science scientists who've worked on all this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. Hit that music. Today's upcoming event comes from ACRA, the American Cultural Resources Association. Registration is now open for ACRA's latest webinar on planning for successful Section 106 agreements, which takes place on Thursday, December 8th from 2 to 3.30 Eastern Time. In this webinar, training specialist Katri Harris will practice applying the tools provided in ACHP's guidance on agreement documents and guide participants in performing a reality check for agreement consultation. Check it out at www.info.acra-crm.org. All right, Nick, ready? Uh-huh. Sponsor Comedy Go. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, you know, you guys always, you know, we have energy drinks everywhere, right? We love energy drinks. Everyone loves energy drinks. Um, so we have a new one to you, for you today. It's super exciting. It's called KO Energy. And it's the first energy drink ever that will immediately knock you out. So all of your problems <laughs> go away. You tired of talking? KO Energy. Are you tired of breathing? <laughs> KO Energy. Are you tired of living? KO Energy is for you. Awesome. Where do I get that? Check it out <laughs> at environmentalprofessionalsradio.com, I think. I don't know. <laughs> All right, listeners, this is where your sponsor, real sponsor opportunity could go to talk about your company. Now let's get to our segment. Perfect. Why you would want to teach comedy to science people, you know, core concept stuff. I think the simplest example I could think of is, you know, like instead of using scientific names for wildlife you just call them what they are and it's that simple you know it's like that's one of the ways to do it like in like more information isn't better information it's the right information that matters so you want to be giving people 
meeting them at their level, whatever that is, you have to be able to have a conversation with them. That doesn't mean talking down to them. It doesn't mean, and actually like, you know, trying to use big words to sound smart makes you sound much worse, makes you sound much more arrogant. People turn that off immediately, you know, casual. You have to be much more casual with the way you write and the way you talk. And even knowing a bunch of stuff, you have to be able to convey that information pretty succinctly, pretty simply. You can't just say, here's everything. I wrote this research paper. Good luck. You know, that doesn't, right. that's what does bother people. It's like, yeah, you expect me to just read through your boring crap. Talk to me. Well, you can't win people's trust when you're speaking a different language from them. They don't, you know, that automatically makes them, and especially if you're using big words, then they're like, why are you trying to assert dominance or, right. you know, make yourself more intellectual than I am or make me feel stupid? What are you hiding? So, you know, you speaking plain language isn't just a matter of like getting the point across. It's, right. you know, saying that I, I'm here at your level mm-hmm. and we can all understand the conversation and I'm inviting you to participate, not just sit here and listen, like you said. Right. And it goes back to like community engagement as well. And I know it's a, it's a challenge for the, you know, the social world we live in sometimes the social media world we live in, but like being a part of a community, being involved with people who are in that community and then giving them information on what you're doing is so much better than coming into a community and being like, guess what? Fools, here's the thing. You know, there's a total disconnect immediately because of that. And we work in Hawaii a bunch and that's actually, it's actually the most extreme version of that I think in the country is if you have a project that's going to happen on any of those islands, you better have a relationship with the community that it's going to be in, or you will not be able to get it done. You can't just show up, you know, it's really, really important. Yeah. And I think there's parallels too, into any situation like that. If you're a new leader or a new manager or boss in a company, you don't just come in and start barking new orders and speaking language you took with you from another company or something. You come in and you learn, you know, you build relationships and you learn how people speak in that company and then learn things about them and relate to them. But if you come in and you're using industry terms that they don't use in that company or whatever, just maybe there's some system or process you had that you thought was better and they don't have, you know, you've got to come in and be at their level oh, from yeah. the beginning. There's an example I can think of right away. It's like, well, at my old company, we did this. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Well, you don't, you're not, you're not there anymore. I mean, that doesn't mean you can't take good ideas from an old company and put them there. But if that's your starting point, you got to learn first, learn first, and then implement, you know, you can't just dive, you know, demand when you first get in because people, it shut off. It's just the same thing. And it's true of like military. It's true of just about anything, you know, any job, any, any, anything you've got to respect the people that have been there and know what they're doing. And you have to listen to them. It's just listen first, you know, be curious to start. And so, yeah, you know, I mean, those, those are all good tips. And uh, I guess say we're, we're going to talk to Bo about science communication and a bunch of other things. So why don't we get to her interview? Sounds good. Hello and welcome back to EPR. Today we have Bo Ren Ma, a postdoctorate associate at Duke University and incoming assistant professor at the University of Southern Mississippi. Welcome, Bo. Thank you, Nick. Really excited to be here. Yeah, yeah, really happy to have you here too. Uh, yeah, I've known you for quite some time, so I'm, I'm really excited to dive into this with you. But first and foremost, you are a material scientist. What on earth is that? Material science really covers everything because everything we have 
as a material in in, in a way. Um, oh, I nailed it. <laughs> Nick was, we were talking about this before we started and Nick was like, I had to look up what materials are. I'm like, it's everything, Nick. It's everything. And I was just joking, but I was right. There you go. We live in the material world. Oh, oh that's oh, no. so cool. Good <laughs> job, Laura. <laughs> but yeah, so it's the science of everything. Okay, great. Um, so it what, is really, yeah. But why did you choose it? Or did it kind of choose you? Did you fall into it? I sort of just started doing it like really randomly. Because like in high school, I remember that I enjoyed learning uh, physics and chemistry. So when I was trying to like pick a major in college, I was like, material science is sort of like at the intersection of physics and chemistry. And like people, the professors from my program did a really good job packaging it and selling it. They were like, this is the future. This is the future. I like a lot of the research topics sounded really exciting. But yeah, that's why I did uh, material science as my major. And I just like stuck with it whole way through. <laughs> well, so what are those kind of research topics? Like what are the things that you're, that drew you to it? And what are the things that you worked on for your doctorate? Yeah, I think as a high schooler, what really got me was some like biomedical applications in the material science field, like developing new drugs, uh, new like treatments for like a lot of diseases that got me really like interested. But when I was an undergrad, I actually did a lot of metal matrix composites materials research, which was very like uh, experimental heavy. And when I started grad school, I wanted to do like a little bit of computational research, trying to like learn more about the fundamental science side of things, learning like the the underlying physics and a lot of the mechanisms of how those like materials and systems work. When I joined the PhD program at Northwestern University, I started doing like a lot of molecular modeling of polymer materials with a focus on like energy applications. For example, like for lithium ion batteries, the traditional lithium ion batteries use a lot of like liquid electrolyte materials, which can be unstable sometimes. That's why like, uh, I don't know if you guys remember like a few years, a few years ago, maybe 12 years back, there were like some accidents that happened to Samsung phone owners when they were charging their phones, um, like the battery exploded. That was Mm -hmm. because of the unstable material in those batteries. So people have been trying to like replace the traditional liquid electrolyte materials with solid polymer electrolytes because the polymer electrolyte materials are more stable. But the drawback is it's not as efficient as the traditional liquid ones. So we're trying to study the mechanisms of how it works so we can improve and design better materials for those applications yeah that see that's really really cool that is much more that it's not just materials laura see um (laughs) um, so but that's really cool it really is really interesting so like so from that you do have the research aspect of it so i'm assuming there's jobs that material scientists get in academia do you find them in other is it research driven position like is it almost exclusively like you do research you find new data and that helps either the school or company that you work for. Is that where you find most material scientists? I think in a lot of like industry, you're like very focused on research. And the end goal is to like develop 
a product that'll like bring more profits to the company. But in academia, it's a little bit different because a lot of times people might be interested in more like fundamental science and research on certain topics. And in academia, there's also like the teaching and mentoring aspects of the job where you want to help the younger generation to become good scientists and researchers. And so research is, is a huge part of jobs in academia, but it's not everything. There are uh, specific job titles in academia that are mainly focused on research, um, though, for example, like research associates, and there are some research professors who mainly do research. But for like a regular professorship, I think the school usually expects you to do like research, teaching, mentoring students, and also like service within the school and also like having some societal impacts. Yeah. And is yeah. that what you're going to be working? That's the, how you're going to be working with the University of Southern Mississippi, right? Correct. Yeah. So is that also what, what, you, what drew you to it? You want to do those mentoring as well, not just learning, not just researching. Yes. Yes. Teaching and mentoring are really what drew me to like a, a professor job. Because if I really loved research, there are other options like industry or like a research position at a university. But I really enjoy teaching. I just love how like sometimes you explain something to people and and the moment they get it, it's so rewarding. Um, and I love seeing that. And I love seeing like students learn and uh, grow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And actually to that end, can you kind of give us an idea of what goes into the molecular modeling process? Because it's in my head, it's really, it's a very abstract thing because you're, bas- you're studying stuff that you can't necessarily see all the time. You see the end results, but like getting to that point is really I guess it's kind of, it's hard because you can't just see what you're doing. You have to kind of map things out a little differently. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Molecular simulations, it's really, you can think of it as doing experiments on your computer, but what you're really looking at is your material from a molecular point of view. So when we do modeling and simulations, We're representing molecules with our models, for example, for like polymers. Polymers are basically materials with repeating units, what we call monomers. And in our molecular simulations, we model the polymers as a chain of beads. And the beads are connected with springs in between. And in simulations, we got to see how they behave and how they look like from a microscopic point of view. For example, for the polymer electrolyte study we did, we wanted to see how fast the battery would charge. Then in that case, we would need to apply some external force to represent the current when we charge our batteries. In molecular simulations, we get to see how those molecules would behave with the external electric field. There's like a lot of good open source softwares that help you do the simulations. And once the simulations are done, there are like visualization tools as well. 
So uh, you actually get to see how those molecules behave. So like, you know, is it, um, how collaborative is the process? You know, like, are you like doing research and it's like, you know, by the end, you're going to be like, this is Bo's batteries, you know, like Bo has this new method that she's done. Um, and you talk about like getting data from having open source data programs that you use to help run the models. Do you also like solicit kind of like open source scientists? Are you, are you talking with people all over the place? Are you talking to lab mates? So how collaborative is what you do? Yeah, that's a good point. So the point of running molecular simulations and modeling is to provide insights into materials design. And hopefully we can provide some guidance to experimentalists as well. A lot of times these collaborations happen in academia. And how it happens is a lot of the time is an experimentalist would reach out to us with some interesting results they've been observing in their lab. And those results could be very counterintuitive and they're trying to figure out what's causing a certain phenomenon. And with the help of computational people like me, we will be able to figure out why certain things work the way they do. This forms a really cool feedback loop because the simulation results will help the experimentalists to better their experimental design. And then there are going to be more results coming from the experimental side as the feedback to our modeling and simulation to make it a better model. So this like iteration back and forth between experimentalists and a theorist or a computational person really helps this whole process. And academia and industry, the research community in general is very collaborative and people are very open to talk about their own research and progress with their colleagues and potential collaborators. So for example, at Duke, we have a really cool project that happened about a year ago. An experimentalist in our department, they were working on this smart cloth. It's a personal heat management device where you can think of it as a, like a patch you can put on your clothes. And they cut open the patch into like tiny flaps. And when we like exercise, our body would sweat and the material, the polymer material would absorb water and the flaps would open up, which helps the airflow and uh, eventually helps your body cool down. And once your body cools down, those flaps would shut down to the flat position again. That's why we call it like a smart cloth. Um, (laughs) And in, in experiments, they try to like design this as a multimodal device. So they deposited like a really thin layer of metal on top of the polymer material. They expect the metal to like sort of reduce the opening of the flaps. But actually in experiments, what they observed was having the thin layer of metal actually enhanced the opening or the bending behavior of of those flaps. So they came to us trying to figure out an explanation of this. We did some mechanical analysis and modeling after that to help them figure out why having a thin layer of metal actually helps the flaps open up more. Mm-hmm. And we also figured out there's an optimum value for the thickness of that thin layer of metal as well. 
that's the insights we were able to gain from the modeling and simulation perspective. Wow. That is pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I love that. I love examples of stuff like that because I don't know, it kind of reminds me, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, plastics and recycling and how challenging that is. Is that some of the kinds of similar kind of research, like where you were trying to figure out how do we actually recycle plastic and reuse it because it's not as simple as just melting it and redoing it because the chemicals break down separately? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think in the polymer research community, there has been a lot of efforts going on in terms of the uh, recycling or upcycling of plastics and just like polymer materials in general. Because like decades ago, when plastics were first invented, everybody was like, this is awesome. This is the best right. invention ever. Right. Um, we were really like in the mess around and, and find out phase. Yeah, right. <laughs> like decades right. later now, like we realized, oh, this is actually not good to our environment. Yeah. Um, so part of my research goals, once I start my own research group at Southern Miss, is to uh, look into some environmental remediation problems because there are a lot of like really uh, toxic and harmful chemicals in our environment and in our human bodies really like it's everywhere so how do we deal with that how do we like clean it up as much as we possibly can and molecular simulations can offer a lot of insights in these areas as well for example like the battery example we were talking about earlier Molecular simulations will be helpful in terms of understanding how those molecules would behave. Would they attach to, you know, like certain surface of certain materials, which we could later use to like absorb those toxic materials or chemicals? That's a possible idea in terms of like environmental remediation. In terms of plastic recycling, I think there are a lot of chemists who are working on developing like good catalysts to help or facilitate the process of recycling or breaking down of polymer materials. Yeah. And so that's really cool. You're going to be working on remediation. So when you say that, you're going to be like looking into like the PFAS materials and how to take them out of the environment, like the Teflons of the world that are in everyone's blood and all that fun stuff that we all found out about i think that's one of the most fascinating things it's like well we got to find someone that doesn't have it in their blood and they're like well okay sorry everyone does uh my bad <laughs> yeah, is that is that what you're gonna be working on those kinds of things yeah pfas is definitely um something that i'm really interested in and the really cool thing about usm the school of polymer science and engineering is a lot of my colleagues are working on the experimental side so there's going to be a good synergy there where we are going to be able to collaborate on a lot of projects. Like I said earlier, molecular simulations could help figure out how to like remove those materials from our drinking water. Right. Um, I mean, we already have some in our body, so let's, yeah. let's hope that we're not going to get any more. Yeah. Well, you're basically like our Lucius Fox when we need to have our Batman suits made, which is come to bow over here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get our materials made um that's super awesome and uh very exciting stuff and i think you know that all sounds 
really amazing but kind of serious. I heard that you like to also have fun and tell some jokes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, how long have you been doing comedy? I've been doing comedy for a bit over three years now. I started in October of 2019. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was like one month before I was defending my thesis. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was reaching well, the okay. point where like, <laughs> I needed need something else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can tell some jokes or I'm going to go crazy. Uh, well, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. So what made you just, did you go to an event? Did you start writing jokes down? Like how, what did that look like? And then I was going to ask you, and I think this is an appropriate spot for it. Then if you started in 2019, how did then COVID affect both your comedy career and your actual career? Because <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I know it did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was in grad school at Northwestern and we were in the Chicago area. And I was basically just like 30 minutes away from Chicago. And I knew at some point that I was going to leave Chicago and move here to Durham. So I was thinking I got to, you know, take advantage of what the city has to offer. And like, I knew that like, I'm funny that people have told me <laughs> that I'm funny. So I was like, Hey, I should, you know, give this thing called comedy a try. <laughs> so <laughs> I took a class at the second city mm. and I just really ended up enjoying it. So after the graduation showcase, I just kept doing it and it's been really fun ever since. I remember the first time, like the first show, the first mic I went to since I uh, moved to the triangle area, I just met so many welcoming local comics and um, they were telling me all about the comedy scene. And that was just like super helpful. I felt like just so good about moving here and meeting all these amazing people which was really helpful also because <laughs> because the whole like pandemic thing because that was really just two months after i moved and everything shut down yeah. um a lot of things like a lot of people were still trying to figure out what to do they were like is this thing gonna last just like for two weeks or <laughs> they were like, should we just uh, lay low for a little bit and then go back into it? Or, and I think starting April, like we moved a lot of things online. Um, I think I, I hosted like an open mic mm -hmm. on some online platform and we did a couple virtual comedy shows as well. Just, um, we really, we really did what we could, <laughs> um, fight <laughs> yeah. to like stay creative and sane <laughs> through the whole thing. It was a lot. And last year was it last, last year when, um, a comedian friend of ours, Brett Williams moved to South Carolina. We did a virtual showcase for her as well. And Nick and I were both on the show. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Like the, I mean, technology or internet really provide a good, like good pl platforms for a lot of the comedy events. And in terms of like professional career, I think it definitely gave me a rough start, um, <laughs> like from my postdoc position, because I was really trying to learn everything about the new job yet. And then just, I had to work from home. So it definitely took me a while to get to the 
productivity level I would I would like to have. But luckily, my research group is pretty cool. Like uh, my my colleagues are nice people, so we used to do a lot of like virtual happy hours, which helped a lot. And North Carolina is a great place to live in. I feel like yeah. uh, with all the easy access to to the nature, all the the trails you get to you get to go to, and just all the fun outdoor activities definitely helped a lot. But just like the mental health impact from the pandemic was a whole lot for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So your jokes, do you uh, draw, where do you draw inspiration for your jokes? Is it, do you talk about material science or do you kind of keep the two separate? (laughs) Um, My jokes mostly are about like my observations of my daily life. I do, I tend to do a lot of like self-deprecating jokes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think that helps because like people would just laugh with you and nobody would feel like offended. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I don't, I don't talk a lot about like material science in my comedy set, I guess. I I do have a little bit um, materials about like life as a grad student or like as a scientist or researcher, because I try to make it like more approachable. I don't want to seem like too nerdy to my audience, but I guess sometimes they just, they just see me for yeah. who I am. Yeah. They know. They know. Not really helpful, I guess. Uh, you know, also comedy, like a lot of other spaces, there's fewer females that are really getting up there on stage and doing stuff. Do you, how's your experience with that been? Or do you feel like you've gotten a lot of like, Oh, she's funny for a girl kind of stuff or, you know, has, <laughs> You feel like you fit in with the with the dudes? Oh man, that is such a great question. Um, I don't think if I've got like the comment like, oh, she's funny for a woman or for a girl yet. Maybe people just don't think I'm funny. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> no but uh, I mean the comedy scene, like the science world, is very like I think it's still like male dominated field and Luckily, there are a lot of female comedians who are very supportive of each other. And there are some really awesome male comedians as well, Nick being one of them, who are also like supportive of us. So I think that makes it easier. I mean, sure, like, you know, comments like, oh, you're next comic is very funny and female comedian. That still happens, you know, on comedy shows. People still like see you like differently, but I think it's getting better. I'm I'm hopeful in that regard. I think things are getting better in a lot of ways, both in the comedy world and the science world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny, like one of the things about like, you know, comedy in general that I think is really interesting and I'm going to dive into your workshop in a second, but you haven't just done comedy. You also do like, you know, you run shows and you do open mics. And so in a way you're giving space to performers and you're, you're able to control that to a degree as well. Do you enjoy doing the jokes? Do you enjoy hosting? Is there something you'd like more when you're kind of on stage? Mm -hmm. Well, I definitely enjoy the hosting and producing perspective. It really, really helps you understand comedy better because before I started hosting, 
and producing my own shows. I was just just regular comic who, you know, performs at open mics and uh, getting booked on shows. I don't get to see a lot of perspective from the other side. But when I started hosting and producing, I started putting more thoughts and efforts in terms of like, what kind of lineup do you want to showcase? Like diversity is definitely a main thing that I consider when I book shows, like diversity in terms of like the comedy style of the comedians, like gender, sexual orientation, age, everything you want to, it's really tied to like the values of me as a host. And I think this way, like you attract audience who also values like diversity and just throughout that process, I think I got to like provide platform and stage time for a lot of folks in our scene and hopefully also got to, you know, like contribute to like building up the the community a little bit as well. Cause there will be like certain audience members who would like start following some comics, social media after like seeing them on a show and they would like keep coming back to, to our shows. And that's just a really nice feeling to have. Yeah, it's like all about like building a community and a safe space and welcoming space for everybody. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like you've done a great job with that. I think it's been fantastic to watch. And thank you. I I really appreciate that. I know you do. I know. But I really (laughs) it's such a great thing to see. And, um, you know, when I (laughs) when I heard you're doing uh, these integrated comedy writing skills on science communication, Mm -hmm. um, tying tying both of your worlds together. So having this workshop and going through that process is so unique and so cool. So please tell us a little bit about that first. What is it? Yeah, for sure. For sure. So the idea really started when I was trying to combine these two worlds, science and comedy, and also just seeing how, uh, especially when the pandemic first started, all the misinformation about the vaccine, that was just really saddening to see, like people not trusting what the scientists are saying. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is because there's this gap between the science and research community and the general public. Because right. as scientists and researchers, we understand really the, the research cycle. It really takes a long time for, for us to figure out how something works and how we can make things better. Um, but like for challenging for them to understand, like, this moment you're telling me one thing and then the next day it's like another thing. It's not like, it doesn't mean the scientists are not trustworthy. It's just, we're communicating our research and there's, there could be like updates to that. So there's this gap. And I think in order to make the general public trust scientists more, we need to bridge the gap So what we need to do is to better communicate our research and science in a more accessible and approachable way. Mm -hmm. Um, To bridge that gap, scientists need to learn better communicate their uh, research and scientific concepts in a more accessible and approachable way with languages and terms that are easier to understand. So like to avoid jargons and um, to explain their ideas to people like 
with maybe little backgrounds in science. Yeah, so that's really why I wanted to do the workshop. And earlier this year at uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, there was this class in their Department of American Studies. It's called Ethics of Stand-Up Comedy. It was taught by uh, Professor Michelle Robinson, and she invited some local comedians to join as uh, guest guest speakers. Luckily, I was one of the, one of the local comedians, and I got to like try out this idea with the students at UNC Chapel Hill first. And it was a it was a nice variety of students. We had students from like biomedical background and we had students from uh, economics nursing background and civil engineering it was a whole a variety and i tried out this idea of integrating comedy writing skills into science communications and it was a 50 minute session and they all uh, had a lot of fun and with the feedback i got from the students i was able to like develop this into a three session workshop which uh, just happened three weeks ago at Duke University with uh, some engineering graduate students. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it's it's one of those things where like science communication, I always joke, like, you know, I have, a, I have an undergrad in psychology and a master's in biology. And I make the joke that like, I know how to, I'm like a, a biologist that knows how to talk to people, right? Like that's the thing. And it shouldn't be funny, right? It shouldn't, people shouldn't laugh because like, oh, right. He is, he is able to talk to people. He is the only one. <laughs> You know, and so, so I guess in my mind too, that's why I love you having, you doing this and giving other people opportunities to, to be that person, you know, to be somebody who's able to communicate those difficult things. How do you do it? Is there stuff like for you that when you're talking, like, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, we're talking about really complicated things and you, you boil it down to, oh, you know, we're just learning how to make a battery more efficient. We're learning how to make athletic clothes more efficient, you know, for you and so is there, is there a method or a tool that you like to use or something that you even incorporated in that class that mm-hmm. you, you can share with the group? Yeah, for sure. So in the workshop, we were telling the students that like the point of this workshop is not trying to help you write a comedy set. We're not trying to make people laugh. We're trying to use comedy writing skills to make the contents more like make the contents easier to understand. That's really the the goal, the objective of the, the workshop. Some methods that I find helpful are like, for example, you can use a lot of like everyday examples that people can easily relate to. When I mentioned the accidents that happened to some Samsung phone owners, right. people can relate. They're like, oh, like I've heard of that from the news, you know, like so that's something like daily examples that are like helpful for people to like understand what you're trying to do, what problems you're trying to solve. And in like demonstration, you can also incorporate a lot of like daily examples as well. Like how can you make an analogy to help explain something? One example I used in the workshop was if you want to explain, for example, data storage. It's hard to imagine or visualize zeros and ones. But if you use an analogy of like storing other stuff, like using file cabinets, people can visualize that because they've they've seen file cabinets in their lives before. (laughs) 
So like analogy is a, is a huge thing. And visual aids is also important. It's hard to like incorporate in just like pure text blogs. But like if you make videos to explain things, you can use a lot of visual aids as well. It could be plots and graphs showing your research results, or it could be just simple schematic drawings explaining the workflow of your project. And um, just like writing a good joke, you might want to have some like good punchlines or taglines as well. So making it like coming up with those like smart punchlines to explain your research can be very powerful as well. So it really, uh, it really impress people and could be a good like takeaway message that they can they can get from the demonstration oh yeah i mean we've talked about on the show a few times like it's one of those things that like you know a good speech that has a bad ending is a bad speech and it's just kind of one of those things where if you don't have those points you don't have those that thing solidified your your point solidified you don't have a message you don't have you know Mm -hmm. a way to say this is what i mean you know like and in the end, all was lost. Okay, everything's gone. Okay, cool, got it. You know, what <laughs> like, which is brilliant, and I love that. And I thank you for doing that. And we are we're close to being out of time. But um, mm-hmm. is there anything else you want to mention before we let you go? Mm, well, I'm looking for students who are interested in um, re- research in you know polymer science and engineering to join my research group. So if anyone is interested, please feel free to reach out to me and we can talk more about, you know, research. Okay. Yeah. And, and where can people reach out to you? They can reach out to me through email boran.ma at usm.edu, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn by just looking up Boran Ma. Oh, comedy stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I was wondering if you're going to say anything about that too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would love to connect on Instagram as well. My Instagram handle is at BM underscore comedy. Please follow me for upcoming shows and science contents. <laughs> awesome. Perfect. Following now. Perfect. Thank you so much, Bo, for being here. We had a great time with you. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, Laura. That's our show. Thank you, Bo, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See you, everybody. Bye. (laughs) 